0: Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurised. A short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear, you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point.
1: Right, so if Greenland's melting... And it's going to flood Florida. And wombats and pigeons are going to come and get us. And the deep sea is going to start
0: to boil. Is it time we went into space? What if there's deep sea in space? And what if our natural enemies, as deep sea scientists, which is space scientists. What if they get to that deep sea before us?
1: We need to know someone who knows about space animals. Deep sea space animals. Deep sea space animals. Let's not
0: drift off topic.
1: Uh, Deep sea space animals. Phone them.
0: Yeah. I am incredibly lucky to be joined by Dr. Kevin Hand, astrobiologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, director of the Ocean Worlds Lab, and involved in a massive range of missions to, uh, to search for life outside our planet. An incredibly busy person that I'm. I'm really grateful that you spared a little bit of time to to have a chat with us on the Deep Sea Podcast. Which it turns out, we're not so different, you and I. Uh, <laughs> so I'm really excited to hear about these sort of potentials for for alien life. Can you can you quickly rattle off what you think are our best candidates that we currently know about?
2: The sort of rule of thumb, the the, the mantra of NASA's search for life beyond Earth has long been: find the water. And so when we look out into our solar system, we can ask the question, what worlds in our solar system or beyond have presently or have had in the past liquid water? And to that end, um, Mars has long been the premier world and focus of much of our robotic exploration, and for good reason. You look at the surface of Mars and you see this history of flowing uh, liquid water, of, of lakes and potentially even oceans. But that's liquid water that may have existed billions of years ago. The Perseverance rover is right now uh, rolling around in Jezero Crater, looking at ancient delta deposits for signs of life that may have existed in that ancient lake. But when it comes to the search for life beyond Earth, as much as I love Mars, one of the challenges there is that we're not going to find any big biomolecules. We're not going to find any DNA or or other large information storing molecules from billion year old rocks. Those molecules, they, they just don't last long in the rock record, even here on Earth. And so part of what fascinates me about the search for life elsewhere is Potentially finding life that we can study and understand and determine whether or not its biochemistry is completely different from ours, whether or not it runs on DNA, RNA, proteins, or whether or not there's some other game in town. And for that, these ice-covered ocean worlds of the outer solar system, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many of my colleagues, are the premier places to go. Uh, These are worlds like Jupiter's moon Europa, Saturn's moon Enceladus, and Saturn's moon Titan. These are worlds that are covered. In ice, but beneath their icy shells, exist today vast liquid water oceans. So if there's a lot of liquid water there today, might there be life
0: alive there today? Uh, who knows? But when it comes to exploration, these are the places that I'd like to go. Historically, when we, we were sort of thinking about the, the old Goldilocks zone and the, the looking for planets that looked like Earth, it wasn't even what Earth looks like. It was this uh-huh. very human centric version of earth and and one of my little things i preach is most of this planet is covered in water and most of that water is very very deep this is Mm -hmm. not just a blue planet this is a deep sea planet and we get fascinated by like oh let's look for rivers and lakes and it's like no if we're using even ourselves as an example you should look for deep sea (laughs) Right, exactly. And the and, and these moons of the outer solar system are really
2: changing the paradigm for habitability. As you mentioned, in the early days of astronomy and planetary science, there was this conception of sort of a Goldilocks zone. Venus is too hot, Mars is too cold, Earth is just right, so as to maintain a liquid water ocean on the surface in contact with a nice thick atmosphere and energy from the sun helps maintain that. but. With Europa and Enceladus and a few of the other moons, the energy for maintaining and sustaining liquid water oceans comes not from their parent star, not from our sun, but rather from the tidal tug and pull that these moons experience as they orbit giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn. And so there's a tremendous amount of mechanical energy going into uh, Europa and that mechanical energy from the tidal squeezing and tugging turns into heat and that heat Helps maintain the liquid water ocean beneath the icy shell. And the ice serves as an insulating blanket. You know, one of the things that I love to um, uh, highlight is that if it weren't for the fact that when water freezes, it becomes less dense and thus floats, if it weren't for that beautiful little quirk of the universe, then these subsurface liquid water ocean worlds would not exist because that those icy shells really are a thermal blanket protecting the oceans from the, the coldness of space and
0: retaining the heat that is created from tidal energy. I find it incredible that it's it's such a different mechanism because when I what first was sort of learning about this theory, is I thought, okay, it's, it's going to be an active core. It's going to be hot in the middle you know in the same way that our planet is but the forces are so extreme it's being needed like dough and it's friction it's friction that's providing the the base energy for these systems and that's i found that incredible and of course that's going to have impacts on on what life might be possible there because even with our own theories on earth it's rhythm it's change it's looking for the chance encounters of complex molecules And a static system isn't going to do that. Even with energy input, it needs change for things to coalesce and then break up and then coalesce again
2: exactly you know, biology life needs disequilibrium be that chemical disequilibrium say at hydrothermal vents or some photons coming from a from a star so life needs that disequilibrium to to sustain itself to harness the the energy needed to drive metabolism and one of the things that you know connecting it to deep seas deep oceans that tidal energy may well sustain not just the liquid water oceans but it could also be driving seafloor activity and power Hydrothermal activity at the base of at least Europa's ocean and Enceladus's ocean. Both of those worlds we think do have rocky seafloors made of silicate rocks similar to what we find here on Earth.
0: If I was to teleport myself to where you think is the is the best environment to foster new life outside of our planet, what are the conditions like if we're just talking about habitability? Can an
2: organism survive under these conditions? Then for Europa, it's basically the following. The temperature and pressure that we predict exists at the base of Europa's roughly 100 kilometer deep ocean, that temperature and pressure is probably not that much different than the temperature and pressure experienced in the Challenger Deep at 11 kilometers depth in our own ocean. And so, uh, you know, I know you've done work there. I've done uh, some work in the the Mariana Trench. And just by a fun little size comparison, it turns out that on Earth, this big planet, the, the pressure at 11 kilometers deep is very similar to the pressure at 100 kilometers depth within Europa, where the gravity because of Europa's lower mass is one seventh that of the Earth. And so uh, the pressures are quite comparable. And so in terms of physical conditions, uh, obviously, we don't fully know the chemistry of Europa's ocean, but we think it's liquid water with some salts in it and maybe some sulfur and and, and other things. You know, I, I think if you took a little Mariana Trench amphipod, and put it into Europa's ocean at, say, 50 kilometers down, it might well do fine. <laughs> Who knows if uh, if there would be sufficient food for it to, to survive, but it would at least... It would survive long <laughs> enough to get hungry, which is fascinating. <laughs> which also, uh, you know, coming to the robotic side, if you could magically transport the uh, deep sea Challenger, the human vessel that James Cameron took down to the Challenger Deep in 2012, and, and I was a team member on that expedition, if you could miraculously get that vehicle out to Europa, it would do fine in Europa's ocean. Now, I got to put a little asterisks there because we don't fully know the ocean currents and a few other things. But from a, a temperature and pressure standpoint, the deep sea challenger would have done fine. And the temperature of Europa's ocean water is probably hovering in that range of minus four to zero uh, C. Uh, maybe it's a little hotter down around some hydrothermal vents, etc. The harsh environment is the surface of Europa. The cha- the challenging uh, aspect is getting through the ice shell, which is perhaps on average, say 10 kilometers in thickness. There's a big debate about that. But once you
0: got to the ocean some of our earth technologies might do quite well. We've got this incredible test bed right here where we live. <laughs> right.
2: and, and that's part of the beauty of the the win-win of developing an Ocean Worlds program where we can really have the vision of someday exploring the seafloor of, of Europa's ocean and Enceladus's ocean, well simultaneously as we kind of develop those tools and technology, uh, advancing our capability for exploring Earth's ocean. I kind of like to think of that evolution of humans from the Australopithecus to uh, Homo sapiens and, and uh, a lot of the vehicles that would someday go out to Europa will go through that evolutionary um, cycling in our own cryosphere and in our in our own ocean. And the comparison between sea and space is really interesting. The um, in the the space community, we've long had to design and build with the what we call the tyranny of the rocket equation, and this uh, challenge is basically that if you want to send a lander to the surface of Europa, you not only need a rocket large enough to get the mass of that lander to the surface, you need to have rocket fuel for the rocket fuel because part of what you're launching off of the Earth is rocket fuel. And so uh, there's this cascading effect that the rocket equation forces you to abide by. And meanwhile, in the deep ocean world, there hasn't really, in my opinion, been an analogous forcing function. And that's a bit of a historical anomaly in that a lot of the deep ocean vehicles were derived from navies. And so in the deep sea community, we kind of got used to big ships with massive submersibles, massive tools. And fast forward to the modern day, we're still kind of stuck in that way of operating. Meanwhile, in space, we've migrated to CubeSats and all sorts of tiny but robust vehicles. And so in the bridge between the sea and space, part of what our team at JPL and a number of our colleagues at Woods Hole, et cetera, part of what we're trying to do and part of what we're Trying to ignite is let's take some of that that space know how and get it into the ocean. So there's a
0: there's a tremendous win win of uh, sea and space working together. I jumped ahead a little bit there, and I, I got excited about what might be living there now. But what processes could have potentially led to life there? Because our current understanding, at least on earth is that we had a sort of single point origin of life that then sort of radiated out it's so exciting to see that dice roll again what might be out there
2: So this is where the the exploration of these ocean worlds really taps into something truly profound. Not only the profound nature of that question, are we alone? Is there life beyond Earth? But when it comes to the origin of life itself, not only would the discovery of, say, life within Europa's ocean be an indicator of life beyond Earth, it would also teach us about the origin of our own tree of life, how we came to be here on planet Earth. So what do I mean by that? Well, um, as you mentioned, on Earth, there may have been, just one instantiation of uh, the origin of life three and a half to four billion years ago or so I happen to think that perhaps there were multiple origins and then a bit of a competition and the tree of life that we now know and love that connects us all through our, our genetic material and that's the the tree that survived when it comes let's let's go back to Mars so again I love Mars but Earth and Mars are very close neighbors and so if we found life on Mars and again we're probably not going to be able to tease out any large molecules. So, so that's a challenge in and of itself. But if we found evidence, um, say fossilized microbes or, or other evidence of life on Mars, we would be at a bit of a challenge to figure out whether or not life on Earth was related to that life on Mars or not. Do these two planets represent two independent trees of life, two independent origins of life? And the reason for that is because Mars and Earth have been transferring rocks back and forth for billions of years. And so it's feasible that a ejecta from the Earth from an asteroid impact or something could have delivered microbes to Mars during the time when Mars was habitable, or uh, maybe life originated on Mars and rocks ejected from Mars landed on Earth and seeded Earth. So uh, that's a bit of a, a limiting factor in our understanding for how easy or hard the origin of life is on a planet. If we find it on Mars we might not necessarily be able to say that it was a separate independent origin and that the that life itself has originated twice. So now let's go to the outer solar system, to, to Jupiter, and think about Europa. Europa is much harder to, say, seed with rocks from Earth or for matter, in that matter, Mars. Europa is at 5.2 astronomical units. That's 5.2 times the Earth-Sun distance. And so even though occasionally rocks from Earth do get out there, it, the, the statistics are just a lot harder than uh, than getting a rock to Mars And so what that means is that if we go to Europa and we find life that for me at least and this is true for Enceladus and Titan and other ocean worlds if we found life within any of these ocean worlds of the outer solar system that to me would be a very strong indication of a second origin of life and that would indicate to me that the origin of life arises wherever the conditions are right. And we then may well live in a biological universe, one where the origin of life is not a real bottleneck, but uh, one that, that chemistry can evolve through uh, where the conditions are right. Just to c- kind of close the loop on the origin of life, another aspect of that that's beautiful is that we can do this hypothesis testing. When it comes to the origin of life on Earth, there are kind of two camps, one camp that says that life on Earth originated in a tide pool on the shores of an ancient ocean, and it was that process of desiccation from the sun and occasional re-wetting from incoming waves and tides that eventually gave rise to to life on Earth. The other kind of camp says, no, uh, we think that life on Earth originated in deep-sea hydrothermal vents and the chemistry of hydrothermal vents is conducive to some of the evolution that we think was at the the foundation of the origin of life itself. So there there are really strong and good and interesting arguments for both of those ideas. And what I love about the exploration of Mars, and also the exploration of Europa and Enceladus and, and all these worlds together, is that the ocean worlds of the outer solar system would largely be a test of the hydrothermal vent origin of life hypothesis. Because it, there's there's no atmosphere on Europa, there's no continents, there's no tide pools uh, lapping onto shores. Europa is an airless world. Uh, it's just ice and space. And once you get through that many kilometers of ice, you're in the ocean. And really, you've got two modalities for the origin of life, the hydrothermal vents and a much lesser considered origin of life area that I like to explore, which is the possibility of Life forming in ice sheets, but tide pools is kind of off limits for these ice-covered ocean worlds. Meanwhile, for Mars, Mars—if uh, life did originate there and it wasn't seeded—life uh, on Mars would have been kind of a, a tide pool kind of scenario, most likely.
0: Would the life be anoxic? Because our, our hydrothermal vent communities are, are, by and large, I think still fairly oxic. So there's still a connection to to photosynthesis.
2: Yeah, Tom, this is—you a, a, couldn't have asked a, a question that's perhaps more near and dear to. Uh, to my heart and actually much of my, my research on, on Europa, which is you know, how far along could life get and, and what are the metabolisms that could take place. As you mentioned, of course, on Earth, oxygen arose because of photosynthesis. On Europa, the ice is going to prevent photosynthesis, but perhaps unique amongst the various ocean worlds, Europa's ice has hydrogen peroxide and oxygen in the ice. And that hydrogen peroxide and oxygen are made by merit of the radiation environment of Jupiter's magnetic field. And so, this is a big challenge for a robotic spacecraft. You've got to survive the harsh radiation environment, but it may actually be a big benefit for the geo. It
0: it may be the reason it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so,
2: so we know that this we, we with our telescopes, uh, our ground based telescopes, and our spacecraft, we can see these these oxidants like oxygen and peroxide. And peroxide, of course, decays to oxygen once it get, gets into warmer water and warmer conditions. And so, I've actually done the math on this that that uh, depending on how efficiently the surface ice of europa is cycled into the ocean below you could reach molar concentrations of oxygen in europa's ocean that exceed the o2 minima
0: zones here on earth yeah this is all leading towards the like oh if there's something there it's gonna be totally different absolutely and then think about
2: You know, and here again, we're just we're deep in the realm of speculation. One of the thoughts that I that I love to think about with respect to, say, uh, an intelligent being that might have evolved in an ice covered ocean, be it within our own solar system or, or, or elsewhere, you know, how their philosophy, how their religion, how their cognitive evolution would proceed, given that they cannot see the night sky. Their sky would be this creaking ice shell around which their mythology and and some of their technology, et cetera, would be based. Now, they would not have that same experience that we had as as early humans, where coming out of Africa, we were guided by the stars. and And, you know, whether it's agriculture or exploration or coming back to exploring the ocean, our connection to the night sky helped not just motivate it, but through navigation also help make it possible. For an intelligent creature living in an ice-covered ocean, how would their curiosity be motivated? What kind of mythology, et cetera, would would they develop? oh that's
0: oh i love this stuff thank you so much for sacrificing some time i know you're very busy anyway but it's an exciting time for you guys at the moment with with rover ops so thank you so much for cleaving out a little bit of your schedule to have a chat with us today
2: my pleasure and thanks for the
0: invitation Even though it's pretty far in the future, it'll be a long time before we manage to get equipment to these places. People are already trying to figure out how we're going to do that.
1: So do you know someone who, who, who knows about deep sea vehicles that were ultimately a test bed for space travel?
0: I do. And it is someone we've been to see with. Who's that? Casey Machado. I'm joined by Casey Machado, research engineer at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no,
1: my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: we sail sailed together a few times sort of back in the day. Back in the day, Landers and
1: Nereus, right?
0: Yes, we had the very bad day. (laughs) The loss of Nereus, which was a, a spectacular sort of AUV, ROV hybrid platform. And I wanted to sort of leap off from that. I'm sorry to sort of start on a negative, but at least from from my understanding, that's what kind of changed the philosophy from the research group of a single, very capable, very high value asset to do this this high risk, super deep work
1: it is a a very good point and that's how we got to um sort of the the orpheus concept which is cheap and cheerful type vehicle from nereus which was like you said very complex but after the loss of Nereus in 2014, there was this big gap where we didn't really have the same extent of capabilities for doing hadal exploration because Nereus just could do so much while you were down there and you had the sort of live connection to the surface and to have that just like go away and then kind of, I mean, it's taken years and years now and we're still not back at that point. So we kind of went away from that possibility of just having everything kind of taken off the table all once to what we're sort of calling a more distributed architecture, distributed systems. So lots of little things that do tasks rather than one big thing. So if you lose any one thing in that, it's not sort of the whole house of cards falling down.
0: Stripping down to, to sort of multiple lower cost vehicles. There's a sort of refining in order to do that, isn't it? It's Everything is super reliable. And if it's not entirely necessary, then it's not on there. They're mission focused vehicles.
1: Yeah, we tried to keep the design as lean as possible, which then makes a great building block later on to add the more complicated mission specific payloads and all of that. Since it's small, it lets you get on any, any size ship that you would want. So you could operate on like 20, 30 foot fishing vessel, just the same as you could on a 100 meter long research vessel.
0: <laughs> and to allow the system to navigate and understand its surroundings, you
1: formed an interesting partnership. Very much indeed. The whole project has been a wonderful collaboration with uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, which is also part of Caltech. And that's been something that from the beginning we identified this parallel between fatal environments and environments that are extraterrestrial, but very similar. So ocean worlds, Earth becomes this great analogy for researching the potential of exploring extraterrestrial oceans. So we ended up partnering with NASA JPL in this. And one of the key enabling bits of technology that have led us follow that, keep it simple, do we really need this philosophy has been the development of this visual navigation tool that we use, which is it falls under a larger umbrella uh, of terrain relative navigation, which you may have heard in the, the the helicopter that's flying around on Mars that launched off of the Mars rover. And so that helicopter is very much sort of the same kind of mission profile that Orpheus has, and as such uses the same kind of navigation strategy.
0: To To come back to the the NASA stuff a little bit, the environments that they're looking for, how that's impacting your sort of design. We're going to have to get the stuff there. And so the smaller and more robust and simpler it is, the better.
1: The problem we're trying to solve is assuming that they solve the problem that they can get something through that ice layer. There's a lot of a lot of parallels and things that have struck me in space as I've learned more about it over these past few years that are like, oh, this is a lot more similar to what we're doing here on Earth than I would have imagined. You would have thought like, oh, space it's a completely yeah. different thing. Environmentally, I find that really cool. And then from a engineering standpoint, there's a lot of similarities in the design challenges for going to space. But then there are a few like key differences. For them, they're they're always governed by what they call the rocket equation, right? The heavier something is, the more rocket fuel you need to basically shoot it off of Earth and get it into space. And in the ocean, we don't care as much what something weighs in air. Who is Jason ROV weighs, you know, upwards of 10,000 pounds, right? So it's something you wouldn't even imagine shooting up as a science payload into space. But it's... <laughs> It weighs zero pounds because it's neutral on the seafloor, right? Because we have buoyancy there. So, that sort of push and drive for miniaturization was something that uh, the folks at JPL really, you know, from the very beginning were like, hey, like this can't be a 10,000 pound thing if it's ever going <laughs> to go to space. And even Orpheus as it is now is, you know, still much too big to go into space and do these sort of missions. But I always like to tell people it's like it, it, it's step one or two of a thousand step journey to when there's a vehicle 50 or 100 years from now, which is a little humbling to think about. But that's (laughs) like, you got to start somewhere, right? Another fundamental difference about space and ocean exploration is that when we put something in the ocean, right, if it doesn't work, you know, you lose a dive, and it comes back up. And then you're like, Okay, I'm, I gotta you know open the thing up and fix it, and then it'll it'll be fine for the next dive, and we throw it back in. So we tend to, at least in my experience, deprioritize these heavy bouts of reliability testing before we go out in <laughs> the field and do things, and and you just rely on like the technical capabilities the people out to sea to fix things as they break. And, you know, that works arg- arguably quite well in oceanography. But in space exploration, once it leaves the planet, you're never getting it back. Maybe that'll change in the future. But things that would go out to Europa, a—it's a it's a one-way trip.
0: I feel like maybe we could learn a lot from NASA on the deep sea end of things. me and Alan have, have talked about this a few times on on the podcast, but there's there's massive parallels, and the deeper you go, sort of the more it starts to align with the the issues that NASA are up against, high risk, high reward, really sort of cutting edge stuff and extreme environments. But they seem to come across so positive and optimistic. Uh, they've just got amazing PR and and it feels like the whole of humanity is sort of behind them in these things. And I, I think us in deep sea we can be a little bit pessimistic. I'm wondering if you're you're finding any sort of elements of that working with them and if there's anything we can learn from NASA and the way they do things and just being a bit more positive about what we do and and how we're doing it.
1: I think that there is definitely a lot to learn, I think actually both ways. and i do I do agree with sort of like the overall portrayed attitude of, I guess, oceanography to space exploration. I I wouldn't begin to speculate why, where that comes from, aside from maybe just we're all salty old sailors who are, you know, grumbling (laughs) and such. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There is that kind of like, you know, forward projecting optimism and hopefulness in that. And the thing that kind of got me, and this is like one of those little, like, more, you know, emotional, personal based things is I went out to JPL several times during this collaboration working there. And like, they have like, JPL's motto is dare mighty things. Um, just, but that, that's like, like a really cool motto. Like, that's just like, you know what, do something that somebody else doesn't think is going to be possible. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot more hesitation to do that and to try like really crazy inventive things in the ocean, maybe as a, as a person who's built a career about trying crazy, <laughs> crazy things in the ocean.
0: It's exactly why I wanted to talk to you.
1: <laughs> in, in terms of the, the other thing you were saying, the learning from each other, I think that There is a freedom and flexibility to the way we approach oceanography and engineering in the ocean that I think NASA and JPL, I think they find that really appealing. All of their procedure and rigor and all of that is restrictive in some ways. And the way that we approach remote operations in our field is much more freeform, and <laughs> much more kind of almost by the seat of our pants. And I think that lets us get away with certain things, but it also gives us the opportunity to learn and iterate faster in certain areas, especially on things like using humans to remotely control something that you can't have access to. And so there's future uh, missions that are heading up to the moon, for example, that are going to have robotics up on the moon that are controlled by the surface of Earth. One of the neat things that I've seen out of this collaboration that's formed through Orpheus is there's now talk between NASA engineers and engineers at Woods Hole Oceanographic about, well, how do do we each approach these remote operations and what can we learn from each other? Like, hey, things that work on controlling a Mars rover, could those be applied to operating a remotely operated vehicle or, you know, vice versa?
0: That's really inspiring. I like that was a pressurized version of one of our longer episodes if you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full length episode just match the episode numbers and you'll be able to find the full length version in the feed thanks for listening we'll deep see you next time and i abyss you already